Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. Sitting down today with Trevor Connor and head coach Ryan Kohler in the studio, and we have Renee Eastman on uh, on the line today. Hey everyone, today we'd like to share a great way for you to enjoy the Fast Talk podcast even more. Join Fast Talk Labs through our free listener membership. You'll enjoy access to our Fast Talk podcast forum, unlock over 45 of Dr. Steven Seiler's lectures and interviews, get our weekly newsletter, and unlock podcast episode transcripts. Listener membership makes the Fast Talk podcast even better. Join today at FastTalkLabs.com. Renee, tell us a bit about your vast experience as a coach. Well, first of all, thank you guys for having me on your show. I am a avid listener to your uh, podcast. I always get some good tips from you guys. I am a professional coach. I've been a full-time coach for the last 20 years with Carmichael Training Systems. And that means I've been with Carmichael Training Systems almost since the beginning of time, if you will, Um, beginning of uh, Carmichael's time anyway. And I've actually been working with Chris Carmichael as a mentor since the 1996 Olympics. Uh, That's when I started working in sports science, in specifically in cycling through uh, USA Cycling. Uh, I had the good fortune to go to the 1996 Olympics. Uh, with the cycling team and have been working professionally in cycling uh, since then. Um, And as I said, I've been a coach for the past 20 years. And through that time, I've also picked up my master's degree um, in exercise science. Uh, I've got um, NASM, uh, sports nutrition coach, NSCA, CSCS, so kind of the full gamut of uh, exercise, sports, and physiology. And I guess I've got somewhat of a PhD in racing for, you know, racing for the last, you know, 20 to 30 years um, on the road and, and on the track. Very nice. Great. Well, we wanted to start today's Q&A unlike we normally do. We want to turn our attention to you a little bit, and that's because you've recently had a nasty crash. Um, It turns out you have a history of some injuries, uh, several broken bones and other things. So we wanted to ask you a big question about returning from injury because it's been on your mind and you've done it before, and so we want to tap into that experience and knowledge. I know it's a big question, I want to set the stage with uh, what are the best practices when returning from injury? I know that that's maybe an impossible thing to answer because every every injury is different, but do you have a, a few tips? Uh, yeah, I do. And uh, as you noted, I, I did just crash pretty heavily over the weekend, but this is not my first time uh, getting injured or breaking a bone on my bike. And I think as you noted, it, it really depends on the injury, the severity of injury and, and how it's taking you out of your normal routine. But I, I would say the number one thing is that you just got to be patient. Patient to allow yourself to heal, patient for the changes that you have to make, 
might have to make in your training or in your plan. Um, I think it's important to focus on the factors that you can control with coming back from injury. Um, you know, things like focusing on your sleep, focusing on your nutrition, maybe taking time to focus on your mental skills. Or, you know, for myself, I can't get out on the road for about three or four weeks now. So what I'm going to do for, you know, focusing on what I can control and things like that is take a time to study the courses that I'm going to race in the future. I can't go preview them out on the road, but I can, um, you know, get online and get, you know, ride with GPS and get the street view and, and all sorts of things like that. Um, I think there's some other things that uh, I can take the time to focus on with um, this time off the bike, time off from training, is to focus on the things that make me healthier and stronger overall, like maybe more time doing yoga or stretching, doing more strength work, rehab work. And I think we're going to get into that a little bit as well. Um, I'm even going to use this time about the things I can control to actually invest more time at work so that when I get back on the road, I have plenty of time to do my training. So I'm going to kind of front load, front load my work. So those are all kind of things that I can do in my control that are kind of active practices to set me up for when I'm actually fully healed. You mentioned the, the strength work. I, I want to turn our attention because you've had several injuries and I would assume they've been over this 20, 30 years that you've been riding a bike. Um, what have you done to prepare your body to reduce the risk of injury when you do crash? Lots of strength training. I've always enjoyed strength training, uh, just, you know, generally speaking, like some people love going to the gym, some people don't. I actually don't work out at a gym, I work out at home, but um, I do a lot of functional work, you know, body weight, push-ups, squats, pull-ups, and I tend to do it frequently, like three, four days a week frequency throughout the year. Um, and with that, the functional strength, I think it's also important to incorporate mobility work, range of motion. I think a lot of people can tend to get into heavy lifting, like that's kind of the buzz, especially for master's athletes, is like, oh, you got to lift heavy. Well, a lot of people might be lifting heavy, but not through a full range of motion. So I think maintaining our mobility and balance is is more important than peak strength because that that range of motion and being able to maybe do a full squat or you know uh, get your arms up above above your head um, helps you with strength in functional ways for life um, a lot of my athletes, when they get injured, 
I would say half of them get injured off the bike. They were like, I was taking in groceries and I pulled my back and now I'm off the bike for three weeks. So um, that's a long winded way to get to uh, the, the simple answer is I do a lot of functional strength work. Uh, I, I think that's a great point and, and like to hear you say that because I always get concerned when I see these cyclists who are only spending time on the bike and you can almost recognize them and they don't have that functional strength. They don't have that mobility. And when they crash, they can get really injured because their bodies just aren't ready for it. I, I think it's really key to give that time to doing the off-the-bike work, keeping the, the whole body strong. And I've had people in, in the past say to me when I recommend that to them, I go, well, how does that can make me stronger or faster on the bike? And sometimes my answer is, it doesn't. It doesn't really make you faster. It's just inevitably you're going to be in a crash. And do you want to walk away from the crash or do you want to be carried away from the crash? And that that can be the difference. Yeah, I think two other interesting points that uh, you mentioned were the the mental skills and the patience. And when we talk about returning from injury, I think about that side of it too, with helping athletes realize that when they do get injured, it might not be a quick thing, but there's also that aspect of, you know, well, what caused the crash? If it was on some piece of gravel and you went down and, and got an injury and now you're off the bike for a while, it can be pretty difficult mentally to allow yourself to get back to your normal speeds again and, and feel that comfort zone. It's almost like your, your bubble of, of like your comfort zone now shrink shrunk down. Mm -hmm. And so we have to really give that time to expand again to its, its normal place. So yeah, I think all those, all those suggestions of, yeah, like the, the functional training, the, the mobility you're, you're going to help now address those deficits that were created by the injury, but at the same time, having them consider that mental side of like, where am I within, within my comfort bubble? And can I expand it to back to where, where it's back to normal? And I would ask a, a, a final question here um, about some of these injuries that may have happened long ago, but you have lingering side effects. Um, how do you deal with those long-term effects, manage maybe there's a pain element to it, Maybe there's a lack of mobility element to it. Are there any words of wisdom here, Renee, uh, Trevor, Ryan, on dealing with those types of injuries? I'm still dealing with my shoulder from last year. <laughs> so say I had a crash on the mountain bike, shoulder injury, and the strength deficit was pretty significant. And now this is coming up to uh, 10 months since mm -hmm. then. And uh, there's still a, a deficit in the strength. But, um, yeah, it's the it's the long-term piece is kind of hard to, uh, to work with, but you, you look for that, those little milestones along the way to see progress. And it's really motivating to, to kind of progress along that path. Yeah. Right. So patience being key here as yeah. well. Very key. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Renee, what would you add? Yeah, I have broken a lot of things and actually, you know, just speaking to that pain management, um, if I did not do the level of strength training I do currently, I would be in chronic pain. In fact, I was, you know, probably four or five years ago, I kind of got out of the, all my good habits. I had taken a break from cycling for a few years. And so I um, also took a break from, quote, training. 
and, you know, kind of snuck up on me. I'm almost 50 now, like injuries add up, um, where I kind of got into that pattern where I'm like, just thinking that it's supposed to take 10 minutes to get out of bed in the morning. And like, you just have to deal with these things um, where, you know, fast forward to um, putting a little bit more emphasis into that functional strength and mobility work. Um, yoga is a big part of my um, routine. There's some, you know, mental components that I like to, to yoga, as well as the mobility and range of motion. Um, but I found that that and working on like dynamic range of motion has helped me manage that chronic pain aspect of all my past injuries. And the biggest being, I have a lumbar fusion. So L1, 2, and 3 are fused together. So that means that I should have chronic back pain, but I don't. I do a lot of glute work, a lot of glute activation, a lot of mobility work, and a lot of core work. And for all those reasons, I get uh, very little back pain unless I do something dumb. And I've learned over uh, the past 25 years not to, not to do that. Um, and I wanted to kind of, you know, the preventative, I, I was reminded of this with the preventative in the core strength and everything. My most recent injuries, um, I broke some ribs. First time breaking ribs, which are, of course, very painful. But I am very grateful that I've been doing a lot of core work lately because every time that I'm trying to get up out of bed I can activate my core muscles and brace myself against the pain of those those ribs um, luckily enough I got uh, just came off a like a block of strength training because uh, I had just gotten through May I had been doing a lot of racing where my strength training was really falling away because I was doing a lot of racing through May. So I just came off a three week block of getting back into strength training and it really paid off with this real recent crash. So I was reminded of that pretty well. Um, every time I get out of bed <laughs> now with these broken ribs. Well, the one thing that just comes to mind for me, and, and this might be a little controversial, but both with myself and with a lot of the athletes that I work with, uh, I see this interesting contradiction where people have been athletes for a long time. You start asking them, what are your injuries? And they can give you a real long list. Like I remember one time going to this chiropractor who I'd never seen before. And uh, he, I went into his office. He said, you know, how can I help you? And I said, I need some work on my back and neck. And he went, no, no, no. Tell me stories. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, tell me the stories of you. And I went, oh, God. <laughs> like, can you give me a little more detail? I was like, well, have you had any hand injuries? So I told him about my hand injuries. And then it goes, wrist. And I tell him about my wrist injuries. And then he starts going you know, uh, up each of the joints of my body, elbow, shoulder, and everything. I had something to tell him about. And he, the whole time he's taking notes. And finally, he just stops and looks at me and goes, I'm on page four. I've never gotten to page four before. <laughs> And then he just says, so back and neck? And I went, 
Yep. <laughs> Left it there. So anybody who's been a, a lifetime athlete can probably do similar things of sharing these injuries. But when I look at people who, like you, Renee, are, are careful, do this sort of work, um, as they get later in life, even though they have all these injuries, they tend to be more functional than people who don't have the injuries but aren't active, spend their their life at a desk, and uh, don't do a lot of activity. I think our bodies are able to handle a certain amount of injury, and though you can say, well, I've got this old war wound and that old war wound, if you take care of yourself, I actually think you're going to be in a better place. I agree 100%. Yeah. Let's move on to our next question here, shall we? This one comes from a listener that we've spoken about before on the show. His name's Velibor Dokic. I believe he lives in Norway. He's not originally from there, but he was the one that introduced us to Coach Giannis uh, Muzinch, if I have that correct, from, from several episodes ago. And this one is a bit technical, a bit nerdy, you might say. He writes, There's so much talk about slow and fast-twitch muscle fibers, and it's and how it's genetically predecided how many fast twitch fibers we have and how little we can do to change that. He has th- several questions here. How are fast twitch muscle fibers distributed? And where do we have most of our fast twitch muscles? And he says, not taking into account our upper body. Are fast twitch fibers more collected in a group of fibers or randomly placed? Or since one fiber can be as long as 40 millimeters, are both types of fibers in one length. And finally, if I do a fasted ride and go totally empty of glycogen, will the fast twitch muscles burn fat the rest of the ride? Uh, Trevor, I'm going to turn it over to you because I know you love your fast twitch muscle fibers and your slow twitch muscle fibers and all the other muscle fibers. So let's let's have you start this one. <laughs> That's quite the introduction. Thank you. Yes, I love my fibers. <laughs> There's some things to to address here. One of them is his point about um, we're kind of doomed to the fiber ratio that we have, and that's not actually the case. Um, I think that was believed a while back, but it's since been demonstrated that we can actually convert fibers. So that's one of the important things to know is it takes time, but fiber conversion is, is possible. And actually... That's one of the explanations of the aging effect. So a big aging effect is we become these giant aerobic animals but really lose that explosive, powerful uh, muscle strength. So the the explosive sports tend to be more for the teens and people in their 20s, and the endurance sports tend to be more for, for older adults. Um, and the explanation, one of the explanations I've recently read about this, and there read several studies about this, is what you see happen is you have to think of this as, as motor units. So there's a nerve that will branch out and innervate multiple fibers. When that nerve is active, all those fibers that it innervates will, will contract. Within a motor unit, all the fibers will be of one fiber type. And what you see as we age is fibers will become deinnervated. Your body doesn't want, so it will find ways to re-innervate that fiber, but it's sometimes not the same motor unit. It's a different motor unit that will re-innervate it, and it's usually the, slow, the, the motor units that, that control slow-twitch fibers 
that will reach out and re-innervate this fiber. And as soon as it re whether that was a fast-twitch fiber previously or a slow-twitch, once it's been innervated by, by a slow-twitch motor unit, it will convert to a slow-twitch fiber. Gotcha. And so what you'll see in adults is that conversion because of that re-innervation. The other thing you'll see is the number of motor units will decrease. So you'll, you'll have fewer motor units that innervate more fibers, which is also why with age you can lose a little more of that fine control that you had as you were younger. So that's one important thing to realize is, yes, it is possible to convert fibers. That being said, there's probably a limit to how much that conversion can take yes. place. For example, you will never be a sprinter because you were born a certain way and you've tried and tried, but it's gonna, you're only going to get so far. Well, there's, so there's another expression, which is all training causes a conversion from fast twitch to slow twitch. So you know, even you think about something you think would be all fast twitch, you look at bodybuilders. Well, bodybuilders have those giant veins that pop out whenever they, they lift because actually um, you're seeing in them most of that hypertrophy and slow twitch muscle fibers. So there's just that generally all sorts, all training will, will cause that move towards slow twitch muscle fiber. Uh, animals that are very fast twitch dominated what do you see them doing most of the time? Sleeping, resting. Right. Think yeah. of a tiger, Cheetahs, think of a lion. Yeah. They'll just sit there most of the time and then do a very fast explosive motion and sit around. Mm -hmm. And so think in cycling, who are the, the athletes that need the, the highest ratio of fast twitch muscle fibers? It's your track riders. And what are track riders doing most of the time at their workout? Yeah, sitting in the infield. Right. So, yes, if you are out training, you're generally going to see that conversion towards slow twitch. And a guy like me who's been training for decades, I uh, probably don't have a fast twitch muscle fiber left in my you're, body. You're screwed. You're screwed. Joking aside, some muscles are – all muscles will have a, a mix, but some muscles will have a higher ratio of one. Some others will have a higher ratio of the other. So, for example – uh, a muscle that's commonly used when they want to do research on slow twitch muscle fibers is the soleus because it's about 70% slow twitch. Uh, compare that to the vastus lateralis, which is only about 32% slow twitch in most people. So you will see differences muscle to muscle. What about this last question here about fasted riding? Again, a little bit of a misconception here. It's really important to remember that when we talk about fasting and depleting your glycogen, we are talking about liver glycogen. If you fasted to the point, again, I haven't seen research on this because they couldn't do the research on this, but uh, I'm willing to bet money that if you fasted to the point that you actually depleted all of your muscle glycogen, you'd be dead. Right, yeah. Wouldn't be, <laughs> if you weren't dead, you wouldn't be in a very good place. Right. So that's people hear this all the time. You need to fast. You need to deplete the glycogen. We are just talking about liver glycogen. Often you can be in that fasted state and your muscles will still be pretty replete with glycogen. And even if you are in that fasted state and you're burning more fat, your body is ramping up neoglucogenesis to get, those, uh, get that glucose to your muscles. So even in the fasted state where you go, my glycogen's depleted, your muscles still have some glucose to rely on. Thank you. Let's, uh, let's turn our attention to an, another question here from a listener. This comes from Amanda Johnson. She's up in Middlebury, Vermont, and she writes, 
As a working mother of two kids, I struggle to find the time to train at the level I want. I'm not trying to be a pro. I just love being active and racing at a decent level. Given my work and life schedule, I seem to ride a roller coaster when it comes to training, which leads to big swings in my motivation, nutrition, and even sleep. Do you have any tips on how I can bring more consistency to my training? Also, what should I expect of myself if I can find that consistency? Big gains or simply less of a roller coaster ride? Renee, I'll start with you. Thank you. I think this is uh, one of the number one factors for the majority of athletes that I coach is, is just the consistency. The athletes that I tend to coach are, are you know, master's level, family, full-time jobs, where life often gets in the way of, of that perfect schedule and that ideal schedule. Um, and I'll maybe start on that. Don't let perfection get in the way of progress. I think um, it's pretty easy to be get frustrated with, oh, I can't do exactly what's on my training plan. But instead of that, it's focus on what can you do? Instead of what you can't do, maybe you can't go out on that three-hour ride today, but what can you do? Um, and I'm often emphasizing to people to, you know, yeah, focus on what they can do and, you know, something's better than nothing. Like is 10 push-ups better than zero push-ups? And I would say, yes, you know, maybe you can't spend an hour at the gym doing a strength workout, but can you do, you know, 50 push-ups and 50 uh, squats and, you know, a couple of planks. And then that took 10 minutes and you did something. Um, and that's going to get, a little bit towards um, of a bit of a, a, I guess, a philosophy of training. And it comes to the core fundamentals of taking care of your body first and kind of being an athlete second. Um, about and It's going to circle back to the consistency, but my five fundamentals are Sleep, nutrition, hydration, daily activity, and mental health. Of taking care of kind of the core of your health, happiness, well-being, and then worrying about your athletics or your training program. Because I think a lot of people can get especially if their time crunch gets so wrapped up into, I just got to jam this hour of training in. And they're not even taking care of the core fundamentals where the core fundamentals have to come first before the training plan. And then when they do get to train, they're a whole lot better for it. Ryan, I know you are also a time crunched athlete. This is kind of, you're not a working mom, you're a working dad. Uh, and I'm sure you have some tips here about what consistency can do for you and how to make consistency a part of the training program. Did you know I wrote this question and submitted it for myself? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, this one speaks to me a lot. And it's interesting looking at the question. It's, uh, you know, struggling to find the time to train at the level I want. And 
there's this qualifier, like I'm not trying to be a pro. I just love being active and racing at a decent level. So I think going back to Renee's fundamentals, touch on this really nicely because it's, I want to be active and race at a decent level. So we see, you know, the roller coaster is swings in motivation, nutrition, and even sleep. So say, well, what are the things that are going to help you have fun racing at a decent level, stay active, stay healthy? And it is, it's those, it's the things that, that, this listener mentioned motivation, nutrition, and even sleep. And when I look at this, you know, we always come back to consistency. And I also think about prioritization of, well, we might not be able to get that big ride in, but it seems like sometimes it's easy to focus on the training aspect of it, where when we do miss that ride, those other areas start to tank as well. So I do this a lot with my nutrition clients where we have essentially nutrition training days. And it's not a day to focus on the bike. It's not a day to focus on other things. It's a day to focus on your nutrition. So I think about how we can prioritize for athletes like this to say, all right, well, if we're not going to get that big three, four hour ride in, that's fine. What areas can we focus on instead to that are still going to help us move toward that being active and racing at a decent level? Maybe we had a horrible night's sleep the night before. So instead of the ride, it's a nap and good nutrition that day. And then the next day, maybe we're back to something where we can find a training ride. But um, I, I like to, yeah, I like the way Renee put it with the, those fundamentals, because we're always trying to balance those. And, and at certain times, we just need to prioritize one over the other. Yeah, Ryan, and I I really liked your idea of how you phrased it, the nutrition training days, because I, too, find that people are either, like, all in or out. Like, if their training gets all jumbled up and they can't train, well, then their nutrition goes out the door, too. And it's back to, well, what can you control? You can't always control your time schedule and your time available to train, but you can always control what you eat <laughs> and you know how much you eat or how much you hydrate yourself or you know um, uh, getting a good night's sleep so that when you do get back to training, your body's in tip-top shape to take that training load. So I'm gonna look at this from that consistency approach. I, I think both of you have made fantastic points. I, I do want to address the consistency question and say that I do think consistency is king. I do think it is really important to have some sort of consistency week to week, meaning I would rather have an athlete train five to six hours a week than have an athlete go two weeks where they're getting one ride in each week and then has a week where they do 18 hours. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think you see the same sort of results when you, and I've seen this with athletes where they just take huge blocks of time off and then try to make up for it. And it's, it's the cramming for exams approach, which right. is not how our bodies work. Mm -hmm. You know, we just had the episode where we talked about, um, how our physiology adapts and brought up the fact that there's structural changes and there's biochemical changes. I think when you have a long period of time off and then you hit the body hard, the body goes into an emergency mode, kind of says, what is this? What's going on? And then you're, you're going to see mostly those biochemical adaptations to try, try to deal with this sudden insult, where I think the consistency is what brings about those structural changes. Now, I don't have a study to back that up, that's my opinion, but it, it, it's uh, hopefully an educated opinion. So 
when I work with athletes and, and they're very time crunched, I'm very big on finding that consistency and basically talking to them about how much time do you feel you can set aside and being very selfish about that time, saying even if it's just five hours a week, schedule out that time, say this is your time and, and make sure you get it, but make sure you get it each week. Um, and I find that planning out ahead, scheduling it, really helps because otherwise you, you get caught in the, the day-to-day. And if you don't say, well, ahead of time, I am going to do a workout at 5 o'clock, the day suddenly gets away from you. And I, I actually have an athlete right now who I've been talking about with this because she doesn't want to schedule it out. And um, she says she'll get to this work, but I can't tell you how many days – She's hopping on the bike at 10 o'clock at night because she kind of let the day get ahead of her. And I have told her, you, you need to plan it out. You need to set that time where you say, I'm going to go ride now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think scheduling is one thing. Uh, Ryan, To Ryan's point, I think you have to be a little bit creative at times. You can't just think the ride is the thing I need, and if I don't get the ride, nothing else matters. It's no, if you don't get the ride, you can do – you could mm-hmm. do mental skills training. You could do uh, nutrition. You can think about that. You could do what Renee is doing when she's off the, the bike this week and looking at courses for the next race and just taking that time to do something that leads to progress. Um, and I think this is where some athletes are creative enough and they have an understanding of all the things that it takes to improve. And so they can juggle those things and say, I can't get to this, but I can get to this today. Other athletes probably can't do that. That's why the guidance of a coach would be invaluable for somebody like that. Um, But yeah, you can make plenty of progress if you only have five days a week or five hours a week, I should say, to train. You just have to be kind of diligent about it and creative about it. Would you you agree, everybody? Absolutely. Right. And and I, I second the consistency is king. That if you're... If you're consistent, then you're going to, you know, make the progress. And I think one of her questions was about, you know, how, what kind of gains can she expect from, from being consistent in, you know, everybody's looking for that quick fix, you know, that quick fix is temporary. (laughs) You know, the, the big gains come from consistency over time. You know, I see it all the time with, you know, people go out for, you know, the big spring training camp in March or whatever, and expect that to fix a winter of not training very well. Well, it doesn't. (laughs) You know, the the long-term gains come from months and months of training, and it's like with anything good, it takes time to get there. Uh, I had a, a, another couple ideas on, on consistency and things that I do myself and things I encourage my athletes to do with, you know, I would say like reducing decision fatigue about like, when am I going to work out? Like finding that time to work out, you know, the more that you can make your life a routine, the better. Now, of course, schedules change and uh, uh, work demands change, family demands change, but um, finding a routine of 
you know, consistent bedtime, consistent get up time, consistent workout time can help smooth out all these factors. If you say, oh, I'm hard fast, hard, I mean, hard stop, I'm in bed at 10 o'clock so that I'm whatever, up at five o'clock. So I have that 45 minutes before the day starts that I can work out. Um, I find that people who tend to be the most successful with consistency do early morning workouts. I know that doesn't work for everybody, but people who have to let it wait till the later in the day, there's always something that comes up, always a meeting, pick up the kids late, this and that and the other. Um, that getting it's that routine of your daily um, rituals, if you will, that I just get up, I work out, and then I'm on to my day. That it's not a thinking thought, like I'm not deciding to get up and do it. It's just what I do. Um, I don't know if that makes sense to you guys or not. Absolutely. I think um, that that routine, and, and it goes back to Trevor's point, I think a little bit about scheduling it. And if it's on the calendar, at a consistent time of day. And for some people that is morning. Some, some people can consistently do it in the afternoon or maybe even at midday. They might be lunchtime uh, workouters, so to speak, that that is very helpful. You're not saying, oh man, I missed my opportunity this morning. Let me see if I can fit it in during the day. Ah, that didn't work out. Oh, now I got to get home for dinner. Uh, after dinner, it it leads to this case of the athlete you're working with. You're on the trainer at 10 o'clock at night. That's no fun. That's not when you want to do it. Right. You would, should be in bed at that point, <laughs> basically. And you're sacrificing good sleep for getting in a ride that you think you need to have. And then maybe that disrupts your sleep even more after the fact, because it would, probably would for me if I was riding at 10 o'clock at night. So. Happy summer, everyone. Most of us are heading into the hottest time of year, so the timing is perfect to announce our new Fast Talk Labs pathway on exercise in the heat. In this new pathway, we tap Dr. Stephen Chung, Lindsay Golich, Rob Pickles, and Dr. Stephen Seiler to see how to manage heat both indoors and outside. Follow this pathway at fasttalklabs.com to bust myths on air conditioning and rider body types, and to get answers on hydration, sweat rate, heat acclimatization, cramping, optimal setups for indoor cycling workouts, and even sports nutrition in hot weather. See our exercise in the heat pathway introduction at fasttalklabs.com. Let's move on to our next question here, shall we? And this one comes from Dom Porzak. He's in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He writes, as someone who is naturally built more like a linebacker than a cyclist, I know that I'm at a disadvantage when it comes to power to weight ratios. I don't lift, I'm just muscular. I eat well, lots of fruits and vegetables and no grains, but I'm not quote unquote lean. So my question is, is there anything I can do to better manage my weight so that my performance on the bike naturally increases? Renee, I'll, I'll turn this one over to you first as well. Well, weight management is something that comes up with, I would say, 99% of my athletes um, in some way, shape, or form. Um, so it, it's a prevalent topic. Um, I 
subscribe to that philosophy of it's calories in and calories out about weight management. Um, and the, the things that this gentleman said about, you know, eating healthy and things like that. I think a lot of my athletes eat healthy. Um, uh, uh, and a lot of people eat healthy, but it's very possible to eat too much of healthy foods. If you're not, if you're not at the weight that you want to be, then you're consuming more calories than you need to, to be at the weight that you want to be at. In, in one part, you know, people get that idea of, oh, this is healthy. So therefore, you know, maybe it doesn't matter how much of it I eat. Um, and that's not necessarily the case. That's not to make the analogy of like when, um, you know, I'm, I'm a product of the 80s when, you know, the snack wells came out and like the fat-free foods and people are like, oh, I can eat so much of this because it's healthy food. Um, but it really matters how many calories you're taking in. And the other thing I see with, you know, weight management and, you know, probably what this gentleman is talking about, because he sounds like he's very active and, and, you know, does a lot of riding and training, that old saying, you can't outrun a bad diet or you can't outrun too many calories, so to speak. Um, a lot of people um, get into an unfortunate habit of overcompensating their calories. And if he's not as lean as he wants to be, that might be what's happening. Um, and if weight is on his mind, what may be happening, because I see this a lot, is people go, people who are weight conscious can often go into workouts a little underfed because maybe they've been dieting all day long or all week long before their big training rides. And then they get into their training sessions and then um, uh, with uh, um, mixed success, if they've been you know, restricting, but then after their training sessions, they become a bottomless pit of hunger. And then they're shoveling food in their face all afternoon after the ride, either because they're, oh, I just burned 1,000 calories on my ride. I deserve this. Um, or it's just they've created such a deficit on the ride that the, it's hard to manage their, their hunger. So the tip that I'm going to say is fuel your workouts. Fuel your workouts. Uh, focusing on preloading your workouts and focus on eating enough during your workouts. And then you can manage your calories a little bit better after your workouts so that you don't get into that overcompensating cycle. Um, that, that might be the number one thing I see for people who are struggling to manage their weight despite their activity levels because every cyclist I know rides enough to manage their weight. That's not the problem. How much you weigh is a factor of what and how much you eat, more so than how much you exercise. Ryan, I know you have some thoughts here. You you talk about the being underfueled and how that affects a lot of things often. So what, what would you share here? This is a hard one. I have so many questions for Dom right now. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, so with with... Dom's question here, it's 
we're, we're getting self-reported information, which when we're talking about nutrition is always difficult. So he says, you know, I don't lift, I'm just muscular. How muscular? What's your body composition, right? We have, I eat well, lots of fruits and vegetables, no grains, but I'm not lean. We're getting into a little bit of this self-reported intake, which is questionable for anyone, especially when it's not, it's not written down. And, and this is where I definitely get into the data and I want to see it. And when we talk about, is there anything I can do to better manage my weight? So my performance on the bike naturally increases, same thing. What's your performance now? What, what's your goal? Is this, is it a realistic goal of what kind of performance we're looking to see? So there's a lot of questions that will feed into something like this. And it's a really common question that, that I get from athletes too. And so what would you do if this, if Dom was here in front of us, what would you be asking him? How would you work with him as a, as a nutrition client of yours? So I, I think Renee touched on some great points about where some of the factors that can impact that weight loss where, yeah, we have a big deficit and then we sometimes will overeat or go into rides under fueled. And I, I always come into it looking at the other side of the coin, making the assumption that Dom potentially might be under fueled chronically. So I see a lot of athletes that that are describing their intake like this. I eat well, I eat lots of fruits and vegetables. I hear that all the time. But then when we actually look at the data, what we find out is that they're existing in the slow energy state and they're not going to see changes in body composition or weight loss because they're never fueling enough. So they're always existing in this kind of chronic under fueling. So like, like Renee said, they would go in under fueled to their rides and they would do the ride, have this, uh, this big deficit. And then if they don't overeat, well, sometimes if they're focused on eating healthy all the time, they may also undereat. And then that's also going to not allow them to change because when we start to get that energy availability too low, then that impacts our ability to make any changes. And we can, at a more extreme level, see body composition actually increase, and then it becomes difficult to lose that. So, so I think we we have two sides of the of the same coin here to look at, but in, and it's always hard to tell with athletes where they stand. So, my my tip is always let's collect data mm. because that's going to inform our next steps. Let me ask a question putting myself in the shoes of the listeners out there, it sounds like you're saying if you, in terms of this calories in, calories out, if you eat more calories than you're burning in a day, then weight would go up. But if you're eating too few calories during the day, your weight might actually go up as well, or may, uh, you might not lose the weight you think you're going to. Is that? Am I hearing that correct? Yeah. More often than not, I see the complaint from athletes being, I can't change my weight. I can't lose weight. And, and typically they'll see weight as relatively stable, but body composition might change because now nutrition becomes an added stress on the body. So we have training creating a stress. And now if we're chronically under fueling, even just a little bit day after day, that becomes a larger deficit over time. And now nutrition becomes another stress. So when the body is under stress, it's just like we've talked about with training stress, right? If we create too much and we dig too deep of a hole, it's going to take a really long time to come out of that and we won't get that adaptation. It's the same thing with the with weight loss, where if we create this chronic stress on the body from under fueling, then the body won't create that change. It won't adapt. And, and if we want to lose weight, we won't lose the weight. Mm -hmm. I do want to be careful about this because I, I don't want to mislead our, our listeners or, or make you th think that I'm... I'm being in any way judgmental, I'm just talking right now about the, the pure physiology of it. And 
I am a big believer that if you consume fewer calories than you burn, you're going to lose weight. And that's just laws of physics. There, there's no way around that. So, uh, Ryan, interested in, in your response to this, but my feeling is if somebody is under-consuming, what is happening is they are either then really reducing the amount of work that they're doing so that they're still keeping their, their calories out lower, um, or alternatively, uh, they're just not reporting correctly. And that's what I tend to see is people will go a couple days trying to starve themselves, ultimately can't handle it, and, and then because that's not a really healthy way to do it, uh, and then will dramatically overconsume. Yeah, I think the, the underreporting is huge. Um, I think in terms of the work that they're doing, it's, that's a good point because what we see that usually comes along with this is they're looking to increase their performance. And if we actually go back and look at the work they're doing or look at their progress, it's been relatively stagnant. So they don't have the energy on board to do the work that they could do previously. So yeah, I think that's a, that's a huge thing is they, they might feel like they're still doing the same work. The perceived effort might still be there because they're doing it all under fewer calories. But um, the actual, if you look at their output and how many kilojoules are doing, they just can't do as much work. Yeah. Let me look. Let me ask this question. Kind of not not something Dom asked, but maybe flipping this around and looking at it through a different lens. A, a person comes to you and says all these things, and then you know the nutrition checks out, and the everything kind of quote unquote checks out. Would you ever go to somebody and say, "Well, you're built like a linebacker, and that's kind of the way you're gonna be. So let's try to find ways for you to perform." at the types of events that you will excel at. Trevor? Yeah, I mean, you have a body type. And if somebody, yeah, I have athletes come to me all the time and say, I, I don't like my weight, I want to bring it down. And that's one of the first conversations I'm going to have with them. Particularly, I mean, if they're eating healthy, if they're a reasonable weight, then the, the question is, do you really want to be that scrawny, super thin cyclist? Because I'm going to be honest with you, there, there are no simple tricks to this. That's hard. You have to constantly be hungry and you can't break the rules. So that's, that's the biggest issue I see is people will be pretty good most of the time, but then go, oh, I ate well today, so now I'm going to eat this bag of Doritos. Well, you just undid everything. You talk to any professional cyclist and like they go out to restaurants with their family. They watch their family eat all these great foods and they're ordering the salad and feeling miserable. It's a struggle. And if you want to be that weight, that light cyclist weight, you're going to be making a whole lot of sacrifices all the time. You can't break the rules. It's not a lot of fun. So when somebody comes to me and the, they are a what I'd consider a healthy weight and eating pretty well and say, I want to get my weight down, it's just they, they have that body type that's bigger. That's the question. Is this really worth it to you or would it be better to focus on the type of race that you're, you're strong at? And I think of an athlete I worked with who had that, you know, he was a big kind of muscly guy. And he really he came to me wanted to to do well at Gila, which is the, mm -hmm. one of the biggest climbing races in North America. And I was like, "You really want to focus on this one?" Yeah, not this, the best choice. And you know, he's a great crit rider, and so he said yes. And I only had three months to work with him, and and we built him to it. But he was, even though I had this conversation with him multiple times, very disappointed because he wasn't winning the climbs. And I'm like, "You're not in three months." going to dramatically change your body type and, and become that climber. Why didn't, you know, let's next time focus on an event 
that suits the, you know, the, your body type and the type of rider you are. We talked a lot about consistency with the last, last question with, um, you know, how that yields the best results in training and fitness. It also yields the best results with weight management and mm-hmm. um, nutrition that if you, you kind of Trevor saying about, you know, pros when they're at restaurants, they make certain choices because they're, you know, managing their weight and things like that, that you can't expect to yield those really good results if you're not consistent with your diet. And another trap I see people kind of fall into, and this is that like, I, the, the quote is, I tried everything and I'm working so hard, but I'm not losing weight because they are working hard five out of seven days or they're working hard for 12 out of 16 hours a day. And then they ultimately kind of lack that consistency to follow through with seven out of seven days. And, you know, they go off the rails on Friday night and, you know, it's beer and pizza and whatever. And, you know, that lack of consistency, it feels like you worked really hard because you were suffering and you were making certain choices all week long. And maybe you were a little hungry on certain days, but then you blow it on, you know, two days on the weekend or or whatever. So the consistency matters with the, um, with the nutrition as well and you know the the consistency is also needed to kind of follow through to the finish line to like make the the suffering worth it if you will because it doesn't you know do anybody any good to suffer for oh i was really good at breakfast and lunch and snacks and then you know raided the cookie jar at midnight kind of thing I will give you an example of this, a personal example of this, because I'm right now five pounds over my race weight, and I'm trying to get that that final five pounds off. So last week, I finally said, okay, I'm, I'm going to start counting calories. I, I don't, it doesn't get to me mentally. I generally don't recommend counting calories, but uh, I've, I've always been able to do it without getting negative or obsessive uh, about it. So I, I'm okay doing it every once in a while. So I did it last week, and every day but Friday, I counted my calories, and I was, uh, as best I could tell, under-consuming every single day. But Friday, I didn't count my calories. I got home on Friday and just went house. (laughs) I I don't even want to know how much I dramatically overate on Friday or why I let myself do it, but it was just one evening. That was it. And I finished Sunday a pound heavier than I was on Monday. Hmm. But didn't it feel like you were suffering all week long, though? Yep. Or it working, is... or like working really hard all week long? Yeah, no, I was, I was working hard all week long, and it took one giant binge session to throw all that out the window. Crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's such a powerful urge that lives within all of us, right? Yeah. So I, I agree with you. It's consistency. And in the past, when I've gotten down to race weight, it's you don't have a binge day. You just don't. You're, you're just consistent every day. 
Excellent. Thank you, Trevor, for that explanation. I know you love your fibers. Um, and yeah, with that, let's let's close out. Renee Eastman, it's been a pleasure having you on Fast Talk today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It was a pleasure having you. Thanks for joining us. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts, and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Renee Eastman, Ryan Kohler, and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.